Welcome to The Compliance Files, brought to you by the Association of Compliance Officers in Ireland. The Compliance Files is a unique podcast series giving you access to industry insights and key perspectives on how the evolving regulatory landscape is driving change, challenge, and opportunity for compliance professionals everywhere. Hello, and welcome to the Compliance Files podcast of the Association of Compliance Officers in Ireland. I'm Kathy Jacobs, President of the ACUI, and it is a great pleasure for me to host this podcast. Vulnerable customers is a challenge that Irish regulated firms have been grappling with for many years now. The concept was introduced in Irish regulation in the Consumer Protection Code in 2012, and the obligation was that regulated firms must ensure that the vulnerable consumer is provided with reasonable arrangements and or assistance necessary to facilitate him or her and his or her dealings with the firm. We got a definition of vulnerable customer being a natural person who has the capacity to make his or her own decisions, but who, because of individual circumstances, may require assistance to do so. For example, hearing impaired or visually impaired persons and or has limited capacity to make his or her own decisions and who requires assistance to do so. For example, persons with intellectual disabilities or mental health difficulties. So we have a broad definition in Ireland. Vulnerable customers exist, of course, in all jurisdictions, and we reached out to our colleagues in Australia through the ACUI's connection in the International Federation of Compliance Associations. This is because in Australia, there was a Royal Commission into Misconduct in the Banking, Superannuation and Financial Services Industry, which addressed, among other things, treatment of vulnerable customers. And we suspected that from this, there would be some interesting and useful learnings for our podcast listeners. So I'm delighted to welcome, as our guest today... From Australia, CEO of the Governance, Risk and Compliance Institute, Sister Association in Australia and New Zealand, Naomi Burley. Naomi, welcome to the Compliance Files podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Cathy. Naomi is here to discuss with me today the developments in Australia in the treatment of vulnerable customers and how that might inform and assist our members and listeners. Naomi, could you just explain for an Irish or non-Australian audience what a Royal Commission is and how it fits into the legal and regulatory framework or landscape in Australia? I guess the the feeling around a, a Royal Commission is kind of a last resort point in time where an issue has arisen to the surface and there's been enough public feeling about the behaviour in a particular industry in particular but on an issue that there has been the political will to push for what they call a Royal Commission. And it has to be signed off by the Governor-General at a federal level in Australia. We can have state-based ones, but, but this was a federal Royal Commission. So it was a big deal at the time because the government at the time really didn't want to have to have one, but the conduct had been such and highlighted by regulators to be fairly appalling that uh, that their hand was forced by a couple of regulatory reports that that recognised that the conduct by some banking institutions wasn't in the interests of consumers in the longer term, and and so we had this play out. It was it was a pretty horrific experience for those who had who were called to testify and provided some some great theatre for those who were watching from the sidelines and weren't at all implicated. Okay, so it's to address egregious failings, and it's it's got a very high sign off okay that's 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 very interesting it had to really meet all those kinds of tests where enough yeah there was enough public will for it to it to move forward and and I think it was also unfortunately to the detriment for a lot of the regulators because 
I think what really forced it in our market was that the enforcement of regulation was felt to have been inadequate as well. And then this made it absolutely necessary to have a Royal Commission. Okay, so I I think a lot of the issues that possibly we're looking at in Ireland and across other jurisdictions as well. So how did the Royal Commission carry out its work and uh, what input did industry have in it? Once it goes to Royal Commission, there's the the sort of scope of work is set and it's well outside of, of industry consultation. I guess by that stage, they appoint a QC. So they appointed an ex High Court judge to run the inquiry. And then anyone can be brought in once the terms of reference are set to have to testify. So it was a parade of all of the key players in the Australian banking industry, as well as the regulatory landscape, financial services. And their scope was covering banking behaviour, insurance and superannuation products and as well as small business effects and agricultural loans. So there were some very specific little pockets of testimony around some particular products. But uh, the terms of reference were set and then it uh, played out for a good six months of testimony. You've spoken a bit about the context for this Royal Commission. So it wasn't set up then specifically to deal with vulnerable customers in a very broad remit. Very, very, very broad. But I guess the context for Australia is that we have compulsory superannuation. And so that brings up in anyone who has worked in any capacity will have been paid for them uh, on their behalf by their employer. When superannuation first came in, when you were employed, you were put into the fund of your employer's choice or whatever might have been set up at the time. That's evolved over time. But that's one of the key factors that has made some customers vulnerable, um, for instance, is around the choice in superannuation and its performance over time. So that's, that was certainly one of the triggers. The products that were available in our landscape, as well as the behaviours observed by some of the regulators. Okay. And how was a vulnerable customer defined prior to the Royal Commission? And did that change? It did in a certain sense. So Australia didn't have a very clear definition in the way that that you've described for Ireland. It's very much around characteristics of the person or their situation. So for instance, it can be as broad as they could have an age-related impairment. They could have signed, been a guarantor for a loan where they're not receiving the benefit of the loan, but they're at risk from having gone as guarantor. They could be potentially the victim of elder abuse. So it's not even even on your personal characteristics. It does have cognitive impairment included in there. So they list out those characteristics, but it's also your situation. If you you may start out as, as a perfectly normal customer from the bank's perspective, but you may end up in a situation where you're in a domestic abuse situation, you then fall into being a vulnerable customer. And you may self-identify that to your banking institution and then they are obliged to treat you as a vulnerable customer. But they may also get clues and then it's up to your financial institution to decide whether they're going to treat you as a vulnerable customer or not based on what they know about you. And I think that was the shift, certainly for organisations post-Royal Commission. This very strong message from the results of the commission was that it was very obvious, it should have been very obvious to those financial institutions that those customers were vulnerable, that they had been sold products that were completely unsuitable for their circumstances and that they didn't understand the products. 
And so the responsibility was then taken from the customer and onto the bank because the bank had enough information to have come up with that definition themselves. So it moved from them having to self-identify to the bank. Once you've got a certain amount of information, a little bit like KYC, once you've got a certain amount of information about them, you should then have an internal policy to be able to deal with them as a vulnerable customer and to treat them that way. So there was a big shift there. There was also a big shift with the regulators because, as I said, part of the focus of the Royal Commission was around, well, we had laws in place to protect these customers. We, we have the Corps Act. We had all these other pieces in there. Why weren't the regulators doing their job? And the regulators came under some fairly harsh scrutiny in the Royal Commission themselves. So, of course, the end result is that they come out with all boots on and they come out with some new tools and new ways of approaching. So their first line was, well, we're now going to really enforce it and we're not going to go easy on you. And if we think you should have known they're a vulnerable customer, that's it. They're a vulnerable customer. Um, and that's our opinion. But they've also come up with some really subtle tools that they're using a little bit more. So the Australian Securities and Investment Commission have developed or come up with some new product intervention powers that they didn't have before the Royal Commission. And that means that if you launch a new product, if ASIC decides that that product is either targeted at vulnerable people or could be sold to vulnerable people or is too complex for the retail market, they can intervene and you have to stop selling that product. They've also, and it's rolling out, so it becomes live on the 5th of October. They've come up with some quite complex design and distribution obligations, which are also, I mean, they cover a couple of other things that happened during, that were observed to have happened in the market through the Royal Commission. But one of them is around your vulnerable customers. And it requires now an organisation to paint a picture of what they think your customer for this product should look like. And if you sell outside of that target market, you have to justify to the regulator why you've done that. So there are some exceptions around that, but you still need to have documented that. And this goes for the entire lifetime of the product. So if market conditions change and the product then becomes a riskier product than it was when you first launched it, you need to do something about that. So these, these design and distribution obligations are actually quite a clever way of addressing some of our vulnerable customer issues that we that we saw in the Royal Commission without necessarily mentioning vulnerable customers because it could be any customer. The other thing that has that they've then focused on as well is just being overt about it. So they're now coming out with their own definitions. We have a banking code of conduct that all the all the banks in Australia who belong to the banking association have signed up to and it says that they will take care of vulnerable customers, but it's all very Still very motherhoody. What ASIC is doing is coming out with, with very defined expectations around insurance products, superannuation, and, and lending products as well on top of the design and, and distribution obligations. So they've approached it in multiple ways. Our other regulator that's, that's in this space as well has stuck to their conversations around conduct. So it's all been, you know, Sometimes overt, ASIC's been quite quite overt in saying this is what this is how we expect you'll treat them. But in other ways, it's had to be more subtle because we have quite complex vulnerable customer because the definition is so open and the circumstances of your people can change. And COVID is one of the circumstances that are being taken into consideration for vulnerable customers in Australia. That, like I said, someone can start out as a as a regular customer 
And six months later, due to work layoffs, they suddenly become a vulnerable customer. And if you have enough knowledge in, in the eyes of the regulator for that, then, then you need to act a, a particularly different way. I think as we discussed in when we were first talking about this topic, we've also got, you know, we've got the traditional lack of choice. We've got uh, a special provision for Indigenous customers. They're, they're regarded as vulnerable customers in the same way and anyone living in remote areas because their choice of bank and their choice of financial product and access to financial products can be really limited depending on the community that they live in. They might not even be serviced by a local bank branch and their access is 300 kilometres away, if not more. So very special considerations have to be put into place and Banks really need to have very overt and very careful training around this because that was one of the findings of the Royal Commission was that these particular customers had been targeted by some financial institutions to sell products to. Gosh, there's, there's a lot there, Naomi. Yeah, sorry. Um, no, it's really interesting. No, thank you. Our listeners are going to be very interested in this. You know, there's a lot there, the burden of responsibility shifting to the bank or the financial services provider, you know, really identifying your target market. So really going into governance, product governance, banking code of conduct. It's interesting to get insight into a diverse population in Australia. You're sitting on a big island. Um, we've got a little island, but, you know, we too have remote areas that would have challenges Probably not quite the same geographic ones, but certainly very similar. And it's really interesting about training, you know, how important that is in, in any framework. I, I think you've covered probably the key findings of, of, of the Royal Commission. How well were they received by industry and what was the industry response? It was very, very brutal. I have to be honest. There were, there were probably only a couple of banks who got off relatively lightly in terms of the testimony. There were some that went in and they obviously were not prepared for the grilling they were going to face. And then there were others that, whether it's it's good or bad news for them, were coincidentally going through some regulatory enforcements of their own and couldn't actually be brought in to testify. So it seemed to go a bit light on them and, and then a bit later on it was released, the penalties that they were facing. Industry, you know, did get its back up a little bit. I have to say it was a very tough pill to swallow because the picture painted was incredibly bad. Obviously, some of the customers brought in, so there was customer testimony. They're quite powerful, I imagine. Very, very powerful. There was a segment, especially in the small business arena, so there was a segment of small business loans that had particularly targeted farmers in, in remote areas. And as you know, Australia is a big island that suffers a lot of droughts. So it's a very long cycle when you're in a drought, and the last drought lasted for more than five years. So these are very vulnerable customers. And if they can't make their payments on their farm, then um, if, if it's foreclosed, they have no way of earning the income to pay to service the loan. So it's, it was a very complicated issue. And, and it turned out that it wasn't a very straightforward loan. They were incredibly complicated products. Um, and there was a lot of co-financing involved. So the testimony there was very, very powerful and made gained a lot of public sympathy. It was covered for, for something that seems like a very, very dry topic. It was covered a lot in the press. So every day there were multiple headlines. And there were a number of banking CEOs and board members who had to resign as a consequence. So there, there, was, there was a lot of repercussions in the longer term. At the same time, the regulators 
also got their wrists slapped as well. And, you know, to be fair to the regulators, their budget is quite tight as well. As a result of the Royal Commission, they did get greater funding and they did get greater powers. And, and like I said, one of the first, first things they got out were the product intervention powers, which is, which is pretty significant because if you've invested a lot of time developing a product and think it's going to be whiz-bang and, and get you a lot of the market and then ASIC sort of romps and he goes, I don't think so that can be a big spanner in the works for you. So it's been, it's been a long thing. There were a lot of conversations at board level about culture and conduct and shifting things, but it's also been slow to roll out the regulatory reforms from a parliament point of view. They're still rolling out now. And the results came out in 2018, 2019. So it's been a long rollout and especially with COVID in the middle. So this final, well, it may not even be the final, but this deadline of the 5th of October, they're probably the biggest pieces in the puzzle from the Royal Commission. And it's a big piece of work for the banks to go through every, because you're also backdating, you're going through your previous products and coming up with a governance life cycle for those and then working with your design and distribution teams to figure out whether that's still a, an appropriate distribution model as well. So a lot of things have changed. And then there's an increased breach reporting as well. So it's ongoing. And I think to a certain degree, the banking industry really did lift its game in, in terms of conduct, but it's maintaining that that's going to be the ongoing challenge because it's really easy to slip back into, okay. into that. Yeah. yeah. Naomi, what was the compliance profession's response to the outcome of the Royal Commission? The professionals amongst our membership really wanted us to capitalise on the findings because these are the messages that they had been trying to get through for years. And it was as though a light bulb had gone on for a number of people in banking, as well as the regulators, to understand that there was a different message in this tone from the top versus what was getting through the first line. And some of the testimony highlighted that compliance had been trying to report issues up for some time and there had been something in the way of that making that to the board. And so I think that that highlighted for a lot of boards as well that perhaps they should be listening to compliance a lot more and not just writing off those reports as something that, that is as read, you know, or an exception report. And there has been much, much greater traction with boards wanting to understand the nuances of compliance reporting and how that fits with what we're now calling non-financial risk in Australia. So the regulators have highlighted that that has previously had very little attention and there were quite a few people that if they had read those reports before testifying at the Royal Commission, they would have been able to have better answers to some really tough questions they were given because, they, you know, there were, there were some directors who got up there and, and basically didn't have a clue what was going on and it was pretty horrific. So it gave us traction and our members were wanting us to capitalise on that for the profession because it reinforced what they've been trying to do. So it was actually quite a positive thing for us. Great to hear that the uh, compliance profession is, is getting the, uh, the credit it deserves. So what changes did firms initiate as a result? Did it impact business channels or documentation or sales processes? 
big, big, big changes for some. So it gave impetus to an accountability, to our banking and executive accountability regime that um, one of our regulators, APRA, was trying to bring in as well. And there's a similar regime being introduced by ASIC for other finance executives. So it gave a lot of impetus to that. It also increased those conversations around conduct and trying to figure out why the values of every single bank. So in conjunction with another association, we did a little scan of all the values that every single institution that had testified and not not come out all shiny and squeaky clean had, and they all espoused integrity and they all espoused customer focus. And so, you know, we they wanted to even look at why there was disconnect with what was going on. And now from a regulatory point of view, sometimes they believe that's the remuneration model. So some remuneration models have changed in order to manage conflicts. So there's there's a big push and it's, it is intensely political, but there's a big push for financial advisors to be remunerated in a different way, but nobody's come up with a really good model for that. So financial ad- advice and financial advisors in the Australian market in particular took a hard hit because they, they were conflicted. They were set up in a very conflicted remuneration model for the most part. And so they've, they've had to have a new code of conduct and, and uh, you know, a number of other requirements to be a financial advisor as well. So big changes, a lot of banks dropped whole areas of their business and have been divesting themselves of, of some of their portfolios or products or arms of their business so that they can eliminate conflicts because they can't manage them. They've recognised they can't manage them because before the Royal Commission, a bank could be a one-stop shop for your for your insurance, your superannuation product, your financial advisor and your normal banking products. And none of those conflicts were managed as well as, as well as your mortgage or any other loans you wanted to take out. And none of them managed that conflict. But the irony was that none of the systems were necessarily talking to each other. So I guess that's the other advantage is a big jump in reg tech in Australia and an embracing of trying to get all of the data a bank might have about a customer into a central repository so that you could, since in theory you have all this information about the customer, you should be using it for something other than marketing and being able to identify if they are vulnerable or whether you should be offering them that loan because you know how much they're earning. You know how much they spend because you see it in their bank account. So rather than this reliance on these declarations, you know, I mean, that was one of the things highlighted in the Royal Commission. So there's been a there's been a support for centralising those systems and getting that data to talk to each other and and the organisation being able to use that data much more intelligently to identify who fits as their customer. You know the flip side of that is then the responsibility, especially with these design and distribution obligations, is if you know that much about the customer, you know whether they fit in your target market or not. And, you know, I mean that's already been implied by the regulator. So. It has benefits, but it also has responsibilities with it. Um, so lots and lots of things. Sorry, Kathy. Lots. No, there's lots. This is this is this is wonderful, Naomi. This is exactly what our, our listeners want. So yeah, a lot there. The accountability regime, which actually in Ireland we're 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 about to push a button on here, and we just um, heads of bill announced and tell your members to get in early and yeah. do a piece of work because it was it was an education campaign with the executives who were suddenly going to be accountable. So they right, thought they had yeah. three. They, they thought they thought they had the three lines implemented in their organisation, but they didn't realise that they actually had to be accountable. Accountable. So you know, we had a 
our experience you know, that's a whole yeah. other podcast <laughs> that is another that is another podcast Naomi definitely yeah as I say we're about to implement that you know interesting again conversations around conduct integrity customer focus it's interesting about you know the remuneration models again coming up the conflicts of interest is, is an interesting one and this business of centralizing systems I think that's going to be very interesting in Europe from a GDPR perspective how you implement yeah. that but you know it's interesting that now with the balance of responsibility with with the banks to know and not just you know rely on that self-identification that's not simple in in, in a European context. So, so lots of interesting innovations there. Can you see any sort of outworkings of the reforms or do, do you think there's been any impacts yet on firms' culture? Can it be, you know, ticked as a success yet or is it too early to say? I, I do see a shift. Like I said, that I think directors are asking a lot more intelligent questions, especially since it has had these immense ramifications and they continue to ripple through. So I think there was a hope for a little while that it'd be a big fuss because we've had royal commissions into the banking industry previously and not a lot happened. Not a lot of the reforms were actually implemented. But we have seen them rolled out. They might, some of them might have been watered down um, because I, I think that's, you know, like anyone sets a sales target and then reality hits in. It's the same with the Royal Commission. You set a really high target because you know it'll be, it'll be watered down a little bit. But because it's gone on for so long and because it's having all these flow-throughs and because of the way the regulators have reinterpreted their role and because they also got sort of pushed to enforce harder, it's continued on, the pressure has continued on, which has meant that it has lasted a bit longer than I think some directors thought. So they've shifted their position and they're asking better questions and they're engaging much more. I mean... Parallel to that, we've also had a very active um, anti-money laundering regulator who has taken some fairly impressive scalps for quite a bit of money in the Australian landscape. And so that, that double whammy of the boards not having paid attention to that at that time as well has really made them sit up and pay attention. So there's ongoing ongoing pressure. And so I think the regulators are making their absolute most they can of it and, and continuing to, to put pressure on. And so the compliance message is getting through and an understanding of what culture actually means and conduct actually means is getting through. So there's been lots of talk about conduct risk. And I think that that's helped people understand it in a different way so that it's not just personal ethics, it's about the group behaviour when you're all together. And the changes in the remuneration model has been a big shake-up and has eliminated some of the players who may have been potentially uh, an issue as well. Gosh, that's really interesting, Naomi. And it's good to see directors stepping up and board members stepping up and, and doing the extra work to understand the needs of customers. And I'm delighted to hear the compliance message is getting through. Do you anticipate any further evolutions or change in, in the near future? I do. I do expect this to continue on. So like I said, the design and distribution obligations coming to effect on the, the 5th of October. And at the same time, an enhanced breach reporting is required by our, our financial regulator, ASIC. And that's an interesting piece of work in itself because organisations are going to be required to report a volume of things and it's no longer really going to be at their discretion to have a really long debate about whether it's a breach worth reporting to the regulator. It's going to be required to the triggers much earlier and they're required to report it 
as soon as it hits that trigger point. A little bit like a suspicious matter, except probably even with even less debate about whether it's suspicious or not. It is, you hit the trigger and the sensitivity, that's it, end of story, move on. So this will keep rolling out for some time to come. ASIC had also prepared a suite of work around what they're calling non-financial risk, which is conduct and which is the compliance reporting. And they've been doing some in-depth research with boards and with directors as well, finding out what they know and what they should have known and how much time they actually spend reviewing compliance reports. So they did that in their first piece of work and then they did some in-depth studies with the boards and they've got a third piece of work that they want to release probably next year or conduct next year. So that ongoingly as well and then adding that into, I guess, the research and literature landscape for organisations as well has really had an uplift at board level. And it's a really small pool of directors who are in charge of these banks in Australia. So it's been quite a shake-up for them as well to be expected to diversify and expected to bring in new directors and sort of open up the club, as it were. And they were finally exposed to the risk that we've been saying that they'd be exposed to all along. Like it was a very visible thing. So I think that that will stay with people for some time to come. That's been a really interesting discussion, Naomi. Is there any any final thoughts or takeaways for our listeners on vulnerable customers and the Royal Commission? We have a responsibility as financial institutions, if you're working in a financial institution. Your purpose is about improving the financial outcomes for your customers, including your vulnerable customers. And you can't do that without knowing who they are. So although it's complex to understand and assess and figure out if someone's vulnerable, it is a really serious responsibility. And there's a real place for compliance to be explaining and be training and be enabling and facilitating your first line to understand that. It is complex, but you find your first line know the customers and they value the customers and they really do have them at their centre. So they'll want to understand that. But training is key. I think, I think we got that before. Sometimes the only way you can mitigate a risk is by training and empowering those in first line to really understand the end benefit for the organisation and the end benefit for the customer. And that's, that's a key compliance role always. So that's my key takeaway. <laughs> Well, Naomi, we talked about vulnerable customers and that, that's been the theme of our, our podcast and you've dealt expansively with that. But oh my goodness, we've touched on so many other aspects that um, resonate very strongly in Ireland, you know, around you know accountability, getting the compliance message across, getting the board and senior management to, you know, ask, ask more questions and take, take that responsibility to the customer's product governance, which is key to serve all our customers, not just our our vulnerable ones. And just interesting to get some of your insights into, into the Australian experience. So thank you so much on behalf of our members and listeners. You've joined us late in the evening in, in Australia to, sh- to share your insights and expertise on, on this really important topic. I think we will we'll probably have you back again. I might hold you to that. So thanks to you for listening to the Compliance Files podcast brought to you by the ACOI. Uh, I'm sure that you find this podcast interesting and, uh, and useful. And we would be very grateful if you would review or rate this podcast. Until the next episode. Goodbye. Each month, the ACOI run a varied range of live webinars and CPD events based on the needs of our members. These practitioner-focused sessions, delivered by industry experts, examine relevant matters of interest to those working in the compliance, risk, regulation, finance sectors. After attending one of our webinars, not only will your industry knowledge be enhanced, 
you will also be eligible to claim CPD credits, which can be used to maintain your ACOI and or other designations. Whatever your career stage, experience or ambition, the ACOI is here to support you. To find out more on our CPD offerings and how you can register, please visit acoi.ie. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Compliance Files. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you are listening to ensure you don't miss out on future episodes.